Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John, it is Fed Day, and of course, we'll talk to our esteemed guest here about uh, Fed Day. This weekend, I will put out, folks, my book of the summer. One of them I'm going to surprise with on LinkedIn here this weekend. It's a wonderful, wonderful book on international relations. And the other one is the third pillar. It was a book last year that was extraordinary on community and is absolutely the book of the moment right now with what this nation is going through. Raghun Rajan joins us from Booth School, Chicago. He is the author of The Third Pillar and, yes, the former uh, central bank head for his India. We'll get to that here in a wide-ranging uh, discussion. Raghun, we have to talk about Federal Reserve policy today. I understand you have a little bit of reticence about that, but the identifiable fault line of our central bank policy is somewhere out there somehow the debt has to diminish. How will they do that? Well, they can't really do anything about it for now. What they have to do and what they've been doing very effectively is support all markets. The problem is when you support all markets, uh, you are not letting the markets do their work. And uh, the question is, when do you allow that to happen? So take, for example, the highly indebted companies like Earths, which are experiencing a revival without any debt restructuring. As we go on, the question is, when do we allow them to restructure their debt so they can emerge healthier from this crisis? And that's the question the Fed will have to grapple with, with all the market supports. When does it allow the market mm. to start operating on its own? Raghu, does the Fed risk its independence? We had a conversation earlier today about how the Fed came out of the 1940s and World War II and basically had to nationalize the debt economy to allow the nation to recover. Is the great unseen out there is we have a Fed that loses its independence at some point? Well, I hope not. But the forces that pushed for Fed independence are no longer operating, right? Remember, the big issue in the 80s was very high inflation, which is what Paul Volcker tackled by, bringing, by raising interest rates sky high. The reason for Fed independence then was that inflation was the problem, and making the Fed independent of the government would allow it to operate and bring it down. Today, we no longer have an inflation problem. If anything, it's a disinflation problem in the short term. And therefore, uh, when the, real, uh, the need for the Fed is really to support the economy, for the Fed to cooperate with the Treasury, as it's doing very well, uh, the rationales for Fed independence become a little less clear. My sense is it will reestablish itself again over the medium term. But in the short run, that rationale is no longer on the table. Well, this is the issue, isn't it, Professor? The perception of independence and central bank independence. If these two, both the Treasury or the fiscal policy side of things, is going to work closer with monetary policy in the year and years to come as they actively support issuance from governments, how do they maintain the perception of independence in an environment where both sides are working together to make sure that we can have the kind of treasury issuance that we've had over the last few months? Well, this is a really big question. It has to work through institutional independence. So, for example, protecting the position of the Fed chairman, uh, 
for government to stay away from criticizing the Fed for whatever it does and pushing for more overt uh, activity. It has to be a discussion which is on equal terms between the Treasury and the Fed. It cannot be one side pushing the other. That will uh, alter perceptions of Fed independence. I think the Fed is doing a fantastic job in cooperating. It's done everything it possibly could. But there has to be a reciprocal arrangement from the government side to respect the independence and not make overt statements about what it should do. Professor, I don't want to cause any dramatic headlines for you, but if we can lean on your experience at the RBI and just reflect on what's happening in developed central banks right now, to some degree, do you think they are taking on emerging market characteristics, how these central banks are operating together with fiscal authorities? Uh, for sure. I mean, this uh, was always an emerging market problem. The central bank was under the thumb of the fiscal authorities and essentially had to monetize the debt. In many industrial countries, we are in a similar situation with enormous amounts of debt having to be put out into the markets and the central banks uh, taking it on uh, on their balance sheet. Uh, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, it's, it's expanded from $4 trillion to $7 trillion in the space of a few a few weeks. This looks a lot like monetization and is very helpful in the uh, in enabling the government to issue. But it has to be seen as temporary and not a permanent facet of the landscape. That's what they have to work very hard on doing, on ensuring there is separation. The Fed is willingly doing it in, honor, in, um, in order to meet its mandate, not something that's being forced on it by the Treasury. Professor, a lot of people don't really see a path for the Federal Reserve to shrink its balance sheet at this point. It doesn't seem like there's any fiscal hawks left in Washington, D.C. as they try to support this government. What's the potential consequence? I mean, building on what you were talking about with developing markets, their currency is the escape hatch there, right? It deflates, it, it depreciates versus other currencies when this fiscal balance gets super out of whack. We're not seeing that, though, right now with the weakening of the dollar being attributed to risk on rather than a lack of credibility. At what point is the currency back in play here? Well, uh, typically, the central bank's intermediation starts becoming more difficult uh, when, for example, the banks separately are unwilling to hold the enormous quantity of reserves that are pushed onto their balance sheet. That typically means a strong economic recovery where they want to expand credit. That's one uh, reason the central bank might find it hard to maintain a large balance sheet. Second reason, of course, is inflation. Now, neither of these is currently a big issue. When they start becoming big issues, it is very important that the Fed be able to shrink its balance sheet by selling assets back on the market. And presumably under these two conditions, it will be reasonably easy to sell assets back onto the market. The, 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 the greater danger amongst these two, stronger credit and stronger inflation, is probably stronger inflation. And that's why that's a, a risk over the medium term. It's not a risk today. Professor, I was reading a recent column that you wrote where you're arguing for federal governments as well as monetary policymakers to withdraw some support now. Is that an accurate reflection of your stance? No, I'm not saying uh, withdraw support now. What, what I am saying is as we go forward, uh, we have to change the narrative from uh, this is about a, a couple of months of support to the economy as we deal with the pandemic and then things come back. Now, that was the narrative which we started 
the fight within March. But now it's becoming much clearer. This much clearer. This is going to be a long, drawn-out battle, and some sectors of the economy are going to take years to come back. Some sectors will have to transform themselves. So what I'm saying is, as we go forward, we have to ask how much support do we need and where? Do we still have to continue supporting Hertz and Carnival? Or should we allow them to restructure their debt and maybe change their business models so that they can deal with the emerging new uh, economy? That's really the question. When do we start moving support to enabling transformation rather than preserving the economy as is? And as we go forward, we have to move from preservation to transformation, uh, both in terms of uh, Treasury policies as well as in Fed policies. Professor Rajat, one final question, and I must turn back to the third pillar in your primal scream for community in America. This past weekend, Chicago, with the gang warfare, was a war zone. We've had protests from sea to shining sea in America. Your book is a book of optimism, but you talk about the intractable inability for America to find community. How do we find the third pillar? Great question. Uh, if you look at what the pandemic has done, it has exacerbated every division we had, whether it's rural urban, whether it's uh, on the basis of race, whether it's on the basis of education. We're sitting, working at home. Others are on the front line dealing with the uh, pandemic or, or uh, serving people in stores. So really, uh, the issue is how do we bring the country together in a stronger way. And I uh, really believe we have to look at disadvantaged communities. We'll have to look at communities that have fallen behind, and we have to ensure that they provide their people a stronger sense of belonging, a stronger sense of empowerment, but also greater capabilities for the new economy we are creating. That requires work bottom up. And that also requires pushing more power to them so that they can seize, seize that power and, and use it effectively. This is a lot of work. It requires transformations of our, uh, tran uh, transformation of our economy. It requires a lot more decentralization. But I think in the long run, this will be the way we get sustainable growth, not through more and more debt, but through uh, stronger growth from every part of the economy. So that's, that's what the book is about. Professor, a really powerful conversation, and we appreciate your time and look forward to getting you back soon. That is Professor Raghuram Rajan, the former RBI governor and the University of Chicago Booth School professor. Early this morning in Paris, the OECD issued what I am more than certain was the grimmest report they've mm. ever done. And with it was some terrific nuance that was led by Laurence Boone. She is their chief economist and has just done a phenomenal job of explaining the distinctions of this pandemic. Lawrence, what is the single distinction when you overlay this pandemic on the global economy? What's the one message you have? Well, the one, hi, Tom, the one message we have is that we are confronted by massive uncertainty. Um, it's a global pandemic, as you say, but also a global economic crisis. And it's the, the, it's the biggest and toughest crisis we are seeing. And because we have this massive uncertainty, we, we had to issue two scenarios, two sets of forecasts for the first time in OECD history. So that we could we could frame, you know, the the extent of what's the possible outlook, and and 
both of them, as you said, are very grim. Lawrence, what is so important here is the shift literally in the last number of days, but certainly in the last two weeks, towards a less prosperous world economy. We had a developed nation COVID virus, and now we have the COVID virus of an impoverished Mumbai and all of India, the horrific statistics out of Chile and the rest of South America. What do you people presume will be the developing economy effect of this terrible virus? So the, this is one of our major concerns. As you know, developing economies usually have less equipped healthcare system. It's much more difficult to confine people and provide a shelter because of the sheer size of informal workers. Um, they've been hurt by low commodity prices as well. And what we've seen is that capital outflows have been more abrupt and massive than in any other crisis. Um, and I think that's where the OECD message becomes really, really um, right on point, because without cooperating globally, it's going to be very difficult both for this country, but for the rest of the world as well, including the advanced economy to renew with the type of growth that we had before. Because what this is telling us beyond the financial risk that, that can be coming from emerging market economies beyond the human tragedy is that the virus, you know, for which we have no vaccine or no treatment, as your previous speaker said, will stay with us if we don't eradicate it everywhere, every single country. And that's why cooperation is so necessary. So, Doctor, give us a sense of kind of how you think the response has been across, uh, you know, some of the developed economies here. It seems like a lot of economies are trying to reopen here. Uh, what is your sense of how this might play out? What are your forecasting right now? So it's, it's very diverse across developing economies. You are seeing countries like India where there's still some states are in strict confinement, others are more open. The government's trying to reach out to informal people, you know, informal workers through digital means and, and also by giving food tickets. Uh, we also have countries like Brazil where the type of decision related to confinement are being made at the state level. Um, or others like Colombia who are actually putting in place um, more confinement and reaching out to informal workers for digital. South Africa has been very um, at the forefront of this because they had some of the other um, COVID virus crises before. So it's extremely diverse, depending on the experience they had and how, how easy they think about using um, compatible they feel with digital and also you know, uh. how large is the country and, and, and dispersed the economic activity. Laurence, do you have an opinion and a view, and you're just so experienced at this, of the effort of Merkel Macron to provide fiscal union in Europe? Have you folded that into the OECD analysis? So I think that's super important because one of the main concerns that we had in the building up of these projections is the way that the pandemic, you know, has affected countries within the Eurozone in a very different way. And that depends not only on the confinement and the way they tackle 
um, the pandemic, but it also depends on the economic specialization and the type of fiscal support that countries were able to put in place. So we were seeing this divergence across Euros and country, which, as you know, having followed that for a long time, is not very helpful. Um, but this, this European recovery plan put mm-hmm. out by Merkel and Macron is, is right addressing this divergence, and I think this is to be very welcome. All right. Laurence Boone, thank you so much, and congratulations on a, uh, just a superb and needed uh, view forward by the OECD. Let's start the program this morning with Priya Misra of TD Securities on this Federal Reserve decision several hours away. Priya, let's just begin with what you're focused on and what you want to hear from that news conference with Chairman Powell. So, you know, I think we're not looking for any specific policy action. We're not looking for them to strengthen forward guidance. We're not looking for a specific dollar amount that they're going to be buying per month. I think what I'll be focused on is the language. How does Chair Powell frame the outlook, frame the reopening? You know, we had a pretty positive uh, payroll number, but in our view, on, on Friday, but in our view, that was expected. When the economy reopens, you will, you are likely to see much better data. But I think for Chair Powell to stress on the medium-term risk, I think one of the things we're really focused on is yes, we're reopening slowly, but are we reopening to a new normal? And we just don't know this. So I think for Chair Powell to say, and for the Fed to say, there's considerable risks in the medium term. We're uh, going to remain highly accommodative and sort of uh, suggest that there might be more steps in the months ahead. So I think we, uh, we do expect them to undertake yield curve control. We expect them to be buying a lot more longer dated treasuries. But I don't think now is the time to commit to that because of all the uncertainty. So I think just suggesting that there's still that uncertainty, I think we'll see it in the, in the dot plot. If the long run dot comes down, it'll be the lowest ever long run dot. So I think that will be the the Fed saying, well, maybe there is some impact on our star based on the 1914 pandemic. Unfortunately, we don't have too many pandemics to go to. But I think some you know, reflection of our star may be lower inflation, you know, even though there's talk around high inflation for some necessities. I think to suggest that unlike a war, capacity is still out there. You look outside, there's still all that capacity. There's tremendous amount of slack in the system. I think for him to stress on that will actually tell the market that the Fed is likely to be accommodative for a long, long time. Speaks to low inflation, speaks to low rates for a long, long time. Priya, I just wonder if they can make it even more simpler. Just a few months ago, if you asked the Federal Reserve what their objective was, it would be extending the cycle. Can they say something like, we need to get this economy back to pre-COVID-19 levels, that's the objective, and monetary policy will be loose until we get there? I think they could. In fact, uh, one form of strengthening forward guidance is to make it outcome-based. Um, But I think if we realize that there could be a lot of structural damage done to the economy, I think it gets a little harder for them to commit to pre-COVID levels. Plus, remember, the economy is growing at a trend. So are we getting back to pre-COVID output level or are we getting back to pre-COVID trend level? I think they'd like to get to trend. But if there is a lot of structural damage done, if if defaults start to pick up, I think the Fed will struggle to say we want to get back to that level, but to suggest that We're not about to take the foot off the pedal. In fact, we might accelerate more in terms of easing if we find that these risks that they're talking about. So I think today they really stress on the risk. If they do materialize as we reopen and we're not reopening to the old normal, then they actually come in with more. I think that's what we really need to see, particularly after the rate rise. I mean, last week we had a pretty significant rate rise. I think the market's trying to test the Fed 
to see how accommodative will they be or are they okay with rates being higher? I think Chepal will be pretty forceful in that they don't want much higher rates here. Priya Misra, when we talk about getting back to pre-COVID levels, we've already gotten there when it comes to markets in terms of reversing some of the losses with respect to the S&P and NASDAQ. There's a feeling in markets, heads I win, tails I win, because the Fed is going to come in and backstop asset prices. So far, the Fed has given no indication that they would like to push against that. Do you think that this impression that the market have has is correct, that basically this is the one tool the Fed has and they're going to double down on it, and that is keeping asset prices high. Right. Great point. I mean, if you look at the stock market, you'd almost say, what pandemic, you know, that will, where is, is, is this medium term risk being reflected? I think the stock market is partly reflecting the fact that the Fed has just told us that rates are going to be low for a very long period of time. So when you discount cash flows, that interest rate component is important. That's why PE multiples rise. I think what we are all struggling with, frankly, and I don't have an answer, nobody really knows, is what is the medium term outlook? Has there been structural damage done? I think um, you know the, the market is right in that interest rates are going to be low for a long time. I struggle with the E component of that, you know, the, the, the PE. The PE could be higher, but if companies are, you know, going bankrupt or particularly small businesses getting impacted, and we don't do enough on the fiscal front. And this still worries me. I expect Jeff Powell to make another push for more fiscal <clears throat> stimulus here. I don't think he'll bring up financial stability as a reason for them to cut back on accommodation, because right. if they do cut back on accommodation and you get a pretty big impact on the economy or you you know, worsen the, the, the recovery process, and that's really the worst case outcome. So I don't think they stress on financial stability, <clears throat> but I do think the stock market is pricing in this getting back to normal. And that's what really I, we, we struggle with as to what right. this new normal is. Priya, we've got a hat trick of sophisticates here on the bond market. That would be you, Lisa Bramowitz, and the host of The Real Yield, John Farrell. For mere mortals like me, can you explain to me, is the Fed action that is talk or is the Fed action that's actual tangible action? What part of where they are right now are they? Are they all talk and promise or are they actually doing right now? Um, so they've done a lot. I think we shouldn't forget how much they did in March. In fact, some of the facilities are still getting rolled out. So I, I would not discount the action part. They did take rates down to zero. They've been suggesting through talk and forward guidance is a very powerful tool. I think the innovation of the 2008 crisis was forward guidance. The Fed discovered that if you tell the market that you're not hiking for a long time, that can keep rates low, that can help asset prices. Um, you know, so I, I think they continue to use that as a tool. That talk is powerful. They do have various ways they can talk, Fed speeches, press conference. The dot plot is one form of that communication as well. The action will be needed, though, at some point, particularly when you talk about the tenure, because talk can only really anchor the front end. So I'll be certainly watching for how does he frame, how does Chair Powell frame the QE program? Is it just about market functioning? Because if that's the case, treasury market's functioning just fine. They can stop QE here. I don't think that's the right policy. I think that's going to result in a big rise in rates. So the action will be needed. Now, the Fed every week does buy treasuries. I think they retain that flexibility to buy as much as they want, as much as is needed, as where on the curve. But I think we do want to hear some talk that's helpful for the long end as to how they're framing it. I think suggesting that we don't want longer term rates rising will tell us that the Fed will buy 
as much as needed to keep that long end anchored until we know that the economy can handle higher rates. So I wouldn't discount talk. Priya, brilliant work as always. And always enjoy catching up with your TD Securities Head of Global Rate Strategy ahead of that Fed decision. Priya, send my best to the team, won't you? It has been an extraordinary day for Bloomberg Surveillance and wonderful conversation, including Professor Rajan. Uh, Moments ago, you heard from Olivier Blanchard, who we spoke to yesterday. It is now time to turn to the equivalent in New York City real estate. Some people do real estate and they go on with their lives and others actually become part of the fabric of the community. William Rudin has done that. He has been hugely upfront on the development of real estate in New York City that has a social good and a social fabric. We are thrilled to bring him to you as New York City reopens. Bill, thank you so much for being with us today. What has the last few weeks been like for you, your properties, and the people within those properties? Well, first of all, Tom, thank you and the the rest of the team for for having me on. And I, I think you know, your, your Professor Rajan just talked about community, and you mentioned it. Uh, and and what what we what we find and what we work on is creating communities and trying to bring people together. And we obviously uh, have gone through over the last several months a very difficult period of time. And in in the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, you know, uh, there there have been I think dramatic sea changes in the way. Uh, hopefully, people look forward and try to bring our communities together, because that's, that's really critical. And I think our city is, you know, so diverse, and uh, that, that's our strength. And how do we bring people together? And you can't do that working from home. Uh, and I think, you know, some of your other speakers have talked about that, too. You, you, you have to be working in your office, working together. Um, you know, I talk <clears throat> about right. uh, collaboration, community, uh, connectivity. So that's what we have to keep doing to move forward our economy. And the you know phase one opened up uh, the other day in New York. You had almost uh, uh, 800,000 people on using the subway. Uh, the governor and the mayor have done an incredible job. To we were at a you know peak you know okay. several thousand people a day getting sick today. Uh, it's right, it's but near- Bill, as I mentioned, I don't mean to interrupt Bill, but just because of time, and I know Lisa's got a whole bunch of questions here as well. What I find so important, Bill is hope. We have to develop a hope of the people. Maybe they're not protesting. Maybe they're certainly not looting, but they have lost hope over the last X number of years, not about the pandemic. They've just lost hope in development. How do we jumpstart that hope within the greater New York City region? Well, I think first step is opening phase one, and then in a couple of weeks from now, opening phase two getting our city back, getting the economy moving again, uh, creating, uh, you know, the con- construction cranes are working. The men and women on those sites are back into work, almost four or 500,000 people. That is a sign of hope. And, and you're right. We need, to have, we need to have signs that give us guidance that things are going to get better. Uh, you're seeing legislation, you know, in New York State yesterday uh, in terms of, of, uh, of, of changes in, in, in policing. Uh, we have to work together with communities and, and create uh, better policing policies where people feel confident about their, uh, their police. And, um, and we have to create economic opportunities for, for all 
uh, spectrums of, 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 our, of, of our population. And we're going to do that. And you're going to see New York City yeah. be at the forefront of job creation, uh, dealing with issues uh, from racial injustice to affordable housing to education. That's what we do. And we've come back before from, from major tragic events, and we've worked together. This is an entrepreneurial spirit. You talk about hope. We, we've come back before from in the early 90s where we had 90 yep. million feet in lower Manhattan. You had 30% vacancy. We came together. We converted office buildings to residential. Yeah. We, we, we created tax incentives for companies to move downtown. You cre- now you have 70,000 people living in lower Manhattan from 10,000 25 years ago. So there, there are symbols out there. 9-11, uh, we came back. Yeah. Uh, well, after Sandy, we came back. Well, Bill, let's talk about the hope versus the here and now. As you own 17 office buildings, I believe, throughout the city, what's the demand like right now for that office space? Uh, obviously, when the city and the country went on pause, things slowed down. But there, you know, again, you know, going back to the hope, a lease was signed two weeks ago by TikTok uh, in Times Square for over 230,000 feet. Uh, over 1,000 people are going to move into uh, uh, an office building uh, on 42nd Street. That's hope. That's a sign that things are going to uh, turn around. We're working on different deals. I know a lot of my colleagues are working on things. Unfortunately, things got you know, put on, on pause. But as soon as we start opening up the economy, I think you'll start seeing activity, uh, <clears throat> leasing, both commercial and residential, and people starting to come back well, into the city. Bill, got to leave it there. Bill Rudin, thank you so much for the update on uh, the spirit of New York City. And of course, with the many, many properties that he has that he's built, particularly his historic effort in Battery Park after uh, 9-11. William Rudin uh, on uh, the spirit of uh, New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.